Amen. Well, Paul has a secret to tell you. Paul has a mystery. He has some knowledge that he wants to let you know about, that he has let you know about. However, I get the sense from some of you here that you might not exactly be the biggest fans of the Apostle Paul and might not be overly excited to hear this mystery that Paul has to disclose. After all, it is the interpretation of the writings of Paul uh, that were used, or at least the writings of Paul and their interpretation were used to uh, support slavery for many years in areas like Houston. It was the writings of the Apostle Paul that have been used to uh, suppress women and tell them that their places are beneath those of men. It's the writings of the Apostle Paul that have been used to tell LGBT people that they don't belong in the church. I could go on and on. There are lots of interpretations of the Apostle Paul that make people feel very uneasy. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of that, Paul is the first theologian of the church. He's the one that took the teachings of Jesus, the acts of Jesus, and put them in a theological framework for the first time. No one else in Christian history is as significant for our faith today than the Apostle Paul. And so I'd like to ask you to put aside maybe some of those reservations and hang you might have and focus on what Paul has to say. The essence of the mystery that Paul wants to disclose The essence of his theology can really be broken down into four points. The four points of what Paul believes. The four pillars of Paul's theology and thinking. The first one, the first key point for Paul, is that the revelation that he received, the revelation that he mentions in Ephesians 3, is one that he received directly from Jesus. This is crucial for Paul. Now you remember the story. Paul, again, he was raised as a Pharisee. It's that reforming sect of Jews that used the Torah in order to try and give new meaning to Judaism in the wake of the decline and later destruction of the temple. So he was raised as a Pharisee, very law-abiding. There are these 613 mitzvot, these 613 commandments that you're supposed to follow as a good Jew. That's where Paul was raised. And even by Paul's own admission, he was the most zealous supporter of the Pharisees and the most zealous persecutor of that small sect who followed Jesus. Who followed Jesus. And then one day... Paul's heading up to Damascus, and on his way to Damascus, he gets struck down and has this incredible, overwhelming revelation of the risen Christ. His eyes are opened, or at least, depending on certain accounts, his eyes are closed and then later opened. But either way, Paul has this incredible moment on the road to Damascus that changes his entire life, and all of his thinking and theology were based on that moment. In Galatians, probably my favorite of Paul's letters, undoubtedly my favorite of Paul's letters, uh, Paul gets up and he says, I don't care what any other person tells you about the Christian faith because I received it directly from Jesus and therefore I'm right. (laughs) So for Paul, again, the first pillar of, of, of his thinking as theology is that revelation in Jesus Christ that he got directly from Jesus. Second pillar of Paul's thinking, Paul's theology, is that the key to the Christian faith is union with Christ and the spirit that flows from that. For Paul, the whole point is, through faith, we die to ourselves and we are risen again with Christ. In this mystical union with Christ, 
that is where we get access to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, of course, gives us various gifts. Paul talks about this at different places. You know, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit in, in Galatians saying, when you have the Spirit, you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Some of you, I'm sure, were taught to memorize those as, as a kid. This is what comes from the fruit of the Spirit. And so Paul, again, was in arguments with other early Christians who might say, oh, you have to follow the law. You have to be a Jew first before you can be a Christian. And Paul's second big point is, no, you don't. Once you have union with Christ, once you get access to the Spirit, you can live in the Spirit. You didn't get the Spirit by following the law. You got the Spirit directly from your belief in Jesus and that union that you have with Christ. That's like point two. And again, in Ephesians chapter 2, the chapter before the chapter for today, he talks about how, how Jesus broke down the wall that separates Jews and Gentiles. That because of this second pillar, the revelation in Christ is open to all people. That's it. First two things. Revelation Jesus, life in the Spirit, through union with Christ. Third sort of pillar, I would say, is that, or at least point that I would bring up, is that Paul then interprets Scripture, which for him is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He interprets Scripture entirely through, his, through the lens of his revelation in Jesus. So because of his revelation in Jesus, he reads the rest of Scripture through that one lens. The classic example of this is in Galatians 4, for those of you who are good scripture nerds. Galatians 4, where he talks about this allegory of Sarah and Hagar. He has an interpretive framework that he uses that would shock and horrify other Jews at the time. But it's justified through his revelation in Jesus. That's how he interprets scripture. That's the lens that he uses. Finally, the fourth thing I mentioned, which I think is worth noting, is that Paul... You know, in, in the beginning of Galatians, he talks about what later became known as the Jerusalem Council. Paul's got this, like, epic tete-a-tete with the leaders in Jerusalem, with James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter. And Paul on the other side, you know, can Gentiles be Christians without following the law? They have this big argument. And in the end, the authorities in Jerusalem say, yes, Paul, you go do your thing. And they tell him one thing. They're like, but this one thing, make sure you remember the poor which Paul said he was already eager to do. All else aside, all their priorities aside, the one thing that was emphasized was, make sure you remember the poor. I'm already eager to do that. So I would say that those are like the four basic points of Paul's theology. Revelation in Jesus. You need him Christ and sort of life in the spirit as a result of that. Reading the text through his revelation of Jesus and remembering the poor. And I would go on and argue that you all here at First Congregational Church are good Pauline Christians. Now there are some out there in other churches in particular who might hear that statement and, and chuckle. And say, well, how often do people at FCC actually read the letters of Paul? <laughs> do they actually like what's written in the letters of Paul? There can be certain points where you're reading through the letters of Paul and you pause and you're like, I'm not sure I get what I'm, Paul's going there. So this is where I bring up another Paul. A Paul that I like very much, those of you who know me. It's Paul Tillich. It's mid-20th century uh, German-American theologian. And in this case, I think it's important, Paul Tillich starts his systematic theology 
by talking about the nature of language. All language, all language is symbolic. All language is a symbol. Language is arbitrary. So let's say this, okay? This right here is a pew. But there's nothing inherent in the word pew that has any pewness to it. It's merely a pew because we all agree that, oh yeah, pew means this. Now, if you have no reference to what a pew is, the word is meaningless. Same thing with all of our theological concepts. Christ, the Christ, God, salvation, the second coming. All these different aspects of our faith are symbols, just like every other word is a symbol. But those symbols, just like pew, have no meaning if you have no reference points. In order for any of those things to have any meaning to you whatsoever, you have to have some sort of reference point in your life. And so Tillich argues that every person, regardless of who you are, has to engage in correlating these great symbols of the faith with something that has meaning in your life. If there's no correlation between those two, those symbols become empty symbols and meaningless. It's his famous method of correlation. It's something that every single person does who seeks to have meaning in the faith. It's just some people have more intellectual integrity about it than others. So we admit here at FCC that that's what we do. We know we have to translate these concepts into concepts that mean something to us. Otherwise, they're meaningless. Everyone else out there does it. We're intentional about it. We try and be intentional about it. Which brings me back to Paul. For me, my own faith is based on a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I did not have a moment on the road to Damascus. I was never knocked off my horse, okay? I never had, like, scales in my eyes that then were falling away when I was in Antioch. That didn't happen. Uh, or Damascus. That didn't happen. Um, but when I was in eighth grade, I remember after I had read the Gospels for myself, I was walking on the streets of uh, Wellesley, where I grew up, with my dog, Toby, or our dog. And I'm walking there, and I remember having this profound experience where I was thinking about the way that the world worked. I guess I was a somewhat precocious eighth grader. Thinking about the way the world worked, uh, the injustices of the world, <laughs> how the world was sort of obsessed with uh, a pragmatist materialism, and how empty that this, kind of, that this world philosophy seemed to me, even in, even in eighth grade. I'm like, how can it be that everything in life is about the more goods you get, the more toys you die with than you win? That made no sense to me as an eighth grader. I'm like, that's ridiculous. You know, what about someone who, who has you know, some sort of chronic disease and dies young? What, how, what, do, what do we make about that? What do we make about the difference, the, the capriciousness of life? What do we make about what gives us meaning or not? It, to, to boil everything down to a pragmatic materialism makes no sense whatsoever. And here I was, eighth grade, wrestling with this. And I remember reading the Gospels for myself and being like, aha, this guy, Jesus, he's got it. This, is, this, this actually makes sense. This is something I can get behind. Go, Jesus. So there I was, eighth grade, revelation of Jesus that affected, that has affected the rest of my life. My faith being based on that. And if I, I were to guess that for each and every one of you here, there was some interaction you had with Jesus that helped shape your perspective on life, your values. Even if you're very much on a faith journey, even if you're very much sort of an inquiring type, there's still something that brought you here this morning. Now maybe it was a friend who dragged you along. That's totally fine. I'll cheer on that friend every time. But nevertheless, there's something that brings you here, and I would argue it, ha- it goes back to that revelation of Jesus, just like the Apostle Paul. 
And I would further argue that you here are on board with Paul's second big pillar of theology. And that is fundamentally, what is the Christian life about? It's about trying to find union of God and a life in the Spirit. When you look around and you see someone who's expressing the Spirit of God, what do you look for? Love. Is that person expressing love? Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Generosity. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. We'd all admit that these are things that when someone is embodying these concepts, you can see it. You can see it expressed in their life. We would all affirm that. That's what we all seek. We want to have the Spirit of God flowing through us. The same thing that Paul sought, the same thing Paul talked about, is something that we seek too. We want to bridge that divide between us and God and try and have a closer relationship with God to live in that Spirit, just like Paul. And just like Paul in Galatians 4, we read the Scriptures through a very particular lens, and that's the lens of our revelation in Jesus. I mean, after all, this congregation, this church 20 years ago, declared itself to be open and affirming. Saying that LGBT people deserve an equal place uh, at the Christian table as a part of the body of Christ as anyone else. Why? Fundamentally, I would argue it's because you're saying, hey, I have a hard time. If, if, if this experience of Jesus is what my faith is based on, and Jesus is about love and acceptance and loving people as they are, I can't reconcile that with then excluding people. They don't fit together. I read the scriptures through that lens because things like hatred and exclusion and judgment don't belong in a church or an interpretation that has its basis in Jesus. And that is the way we read scripture. Through that personal revelation you have with Jesus. And again, Paul's fourth thing, always remember the poor. We are a church that lifts up and affirms the tradition of liberation theology. That there is a preferential option for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. That when we have to look at scriptures and we look at what our Christian calling is, we have to acknowledge first and foremost that God is with those who are poor, oppressed, and marginalized. In spite of our society's rush to judge those people, the Christian calling is to do the opposite. And even though we might not always do it as well as we can, we affirm that just like Paul did. But remember the poor, which I was eager to do. Now, today is the Epiphany, Epiphany Sunday. Usually when we think of Epiphany Sunday, we think of the three wise men bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I mean, Tom was pointing out his great tie that's got the three wise men on it. We're probably one of the only churches in Houston that's not singing We Three Kings right now. But the Epiphany fundamentally is not necessarily about the three wise men. It's about what they represent, which is the revelation of Jesus to the world. Again, the great, the great scripture line that's said on Epiphany Sunday uh, from Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The Epiphany. The revealing of Christ to the world. The revealing of Jesus in our lives. That's what the Epiphany is about. And this morning I'm trying to tell you that that mystery of Paul that he tries to reveal, that same Epiphany that, that Paul talks about, the same mystery that is the basis of his theology, is something that you all here share. You are good Pauline Christians. You are good Christians who are firm in a long-standing 2,000-year tradition of the faith. This is something that we should celebrate and something that I want you to, to share. Again, Paul writes in Ephesians towards the end of our passage. What does he say? 
He says he does this. He shares this mystery so that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The rulers and authorities in heavenly places, those principalities and powers that work against the goodness in this world, we here as the church are a witness against that. The same principalities and powers that Nate and MJ wanted to make sure that they renounced uh, on behalf of their kids. So that is our calling today. It's Epiphany Sunday. You have this mystery. You have this special stuff. What are you going to do with it? This is the season of Epiphany. It's green starting next Sunday. Season of growth. Use this Epiphany. Do you want to explore these theological concepts more? Let's do it. I'm game. I can recommend some good books. Do you want to go do it by expressing your faith and these pillars by going out and doing something in the world? This is Epiphany Sunday. It's a new year. I'm game. Let's do it. You want to go invite some more people to church and have them come here and tell all the great stuff that's going on? I'm game. Let's do it. This is a mystery that you have. And this epiphany, this is this is revelation. You have to decide what you're going to do with it. And my word for you today is do something with it. Because it's special. And it's great. And it truly is the good news of the gospel.